I made a statement that uh, on the cross, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. He probably spoke Aramaic most of the time, unless he was in the synagogue where he would have spoke uh, Hebrew. And the, the gospel writers preserved what he said in Aramaic on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And I I made the statement that for the gospel writers to preserve that verbatim in the tongue that Jesus spoke it, and not to translate it into Greek as the rest of the New Testament is in Greek, means that that's of of profound importance. We went into that. And I I might have said that that's the only time that that happened. I'm not sure if I said that was the only time or that was the only time that I was aware of. But I, uh, since that time, have been made aware of a couple of other times. That, that the Aramaic of Jesus was preserved. And, and the same principles hold true. I'm going to share with you another one of those out of Mark 5 today. And if any one of you can find another example, I think there's at least one more, uh, and let me know, then I'll preach on that too. But the whole principle is that, that the Gospel writers, and in this case Mark, preserved what Jesus says or said in Aramaic because it's of primary importance to our understanding of the gospel. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus says to a little girl who's dead, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. We're going to see why that is so important to our understanding of the gospel. Uh, Before I read to you this passage out of Mark 5, I want to give you uh, some structural observations that will help us to understand the way in which Mark has put this chapter together, at least this part of the chapter. The first thing is we're going to look at two stories that are not immediately related. I mean, I guess chronologically they're related, but you might be able to sort of look at one story in isolation from the other, except... There are two reasons that Mark has said we must read these two stories together. The first uh, story is the healing of a woman with a bleeding disease. And the second story is the, the story of Jesus raising this little girl from the dead. And structurally, they have to be read together. Uh, the first reason is that, that the story of Jesus raising the little girl from the dead is at the beginning and the end. So it creates an envelope around the story of Jesus healing the woman with the bleeding disease. So, so we start with, with the story of Jesus going to heal the, uh, the little girl who is dying and ends up dying. Then we transition to uh, the story of Jesus healing the woman with the bleeding disease. And then we're back to the story of Je- Jesus healing the little girl who had died. Because of the envelope of the one story around the other... It means we need to read these two stories together. The second observation that that I just bring to your attention to show that these two stories ought to be read together is that the little girl who had died was 12 years old. And the woman with the bleeding disease had been uh, suffering with this disease for 12 years. That might just be a coincidence, but it just doesn't seem like a coincidence. Uh, Otherwise, what's the point of Mark bringing that to our attention? I suppose it's just statistical information, except that it it links the woman and the little girl. So this is a profound day in Jesus' ministry. Our question today then, as we unpack both stories, why are these two seemingly unrelated stories, except for the fact that they happen on the same day, why theologically, not just historically and chronologically, but why theologically 
do these two stories need to be read together? Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5? Mark chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 21. Would you please stand? The Gospel of Mark, starting in verse 21, these are the words of God written through the evangelist Mark. So as we read this, this is God speaking to us. Mark 5.21 When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now we're going to transition to the second story, or the first story. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had It was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but only sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kum, which means little girl. I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. These are the words of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, for this account of Jesus' healing ministry. I pray that you would open this text to us, help us to understand it. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a healer. And you are one who raises people from the dead. I pray that you would help us to understand how this passage, these two accounts relate to our lives here so many years later. Would your grace be upon me? Please speak through me in spite of all of my frailties and shortcomings. I pray that you would glorify yourself. 
I ask that you would bless this congregation and build us up, that you might make us ready for the time of greater persecution that may come in this generation. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. On the way to healing this little girl who was dying, and then we find out that she did in fact die, Mark takes us on a detour. And he says, on on the way, there was this other episode that happened. I want to give you six observations as we just look at that passage again. Let's just... uh, Read it, starting in verse 26 again. There was a woman, uh, and she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. That's how this account starts. Uh, now, for us, it's, it's a bit curious. What does this mean, that she had a discharge of blood? Well, this is probably referring to uh, a disease that caused this woman to menstruate continually. For 12 years. So you just think about how that would drain you to be bleeding continually for, for 12 years. The pain, the discomfort. Worst of all for this woman was that it made her ceremonially unclean. And we don't think much in terms of clean and unclean. We're not going to get into all of the depths of that right now. But what we have to understand, and I'll just say a few things about it, is that this idea of the world being separated into spheres of of holy, that is, those things that that uh, belong to God, have been set apart for God, then those things that are profane, those things that aren't related to God, and then the profane category gets further subdivided into the things that are clean, that is sort of this neutral ground where clean people, though they may not be holy or set apart for God, they, they were ceremonially permitted to approach God in the way that God had commanded through Moses. So there was this very complex system where God kept himself separate from his people just to remind us not to be casual with God. Clean people, though they weren't necessarily holy or set apart for God, could approach God with certain sacrificial rituals and rites. But then there were a whole host of things that would make someone unclean. And those things would say, well, because you're unclean, you have to stay at a further distance even from the people who were clean. So, so there was a, a level of, of degra- uh, gradation of people that could approach God. You had the holy people and the holy things that could get right inside the tent of meeting. The holiest moment in the year was the day of atonement when the the high priest would go through all of these rituals to make himself completely holy so that he could go into the holy of holies which was the holiest place on earth so one of the things that would cause women to be unclean was their their monthly menstrual cycle for that period when they were menstruating they were unclean they had to stay at a distance doesn't mean that they were morally sinful or anything like that. You can't think in those terms. This was not a moral issue. It was a, a cleanliness issue, which had to do with your, your ability to approach God. And we might say, well, why would menstruation cause a woman to be unclean? It just doesn't seem quite fair, does it? 
I mean, women don't choose to menstruate. It's not something that they chose. It was actually God's idea in the first place. So why then would he say, well, for that time, you must keep your distance from me. It doesn't seem to make sense in our modern sensitivities. Well, let me just give you a few verses to go back to and look at your own, and then I'm not going to go there, but I'll just talk about them. Leviticus 15, 19-28 talks about this at length. Let me just summarize by saying that the whole idea of of menstruation being unclean is that menstruation was a reminder to, to the woman, to her family, to the community that an opportunity for life had been missed. If you just got to sort of think about that for a moment. Menstruation was a reminder that there was an opportunity for life. Had there been conception, there would not have been menstruation. There would not have been the shedding of blood. But the shedding of blood is always sort of this reminder of the opposite of life. So there's this monthly reminder that that humanity is in this fallen state, that there's this opportunity for life, but that opportunity had been missed. I want to be very sensitive about this. Um, There may be some here who have struggled or are struggling with infertility. My wife and I went through many years where that was the case for us, where every month we were reminded of the opportunity for life that had been missed. And we grieved every month as if a death had taken place. And in some senses... A death had taken place. It's not the same kind of death. There wasn't an actual person who had died because there hadn't been conception that we know of. But there was an opportunity missed. As as the years went on, every month became more and more difficult. And so this idea, if we can just recognize, is not about morality. It's not about sinfulness. It's about... God using every part of His creation to communicate to us profound theology. If you can put yourself in that place and recognize that that's the situation. Now, you think about this woman, 12 years, without stop, constant reminder through the shedding of blood of the fallenness of humanity, the the death of of humanity continually that's the point here that's the point let's continue on as we get past verse 26 she suffered much under many physicians she didn't want this to be her situation she went to doctor after doctor she spent much money, all that she had, but she was never getting any better. In fact, it just got worse and worse. And the pain, both physical and emotional and spiritual, because remember, there's a spiritual part where she was left outside of the worshiping community. She became a permanent outcast in society. She shouldn't have even been mixing and mingling with the crowd that was gathered around Jesus because she was unclean and she knew that. But she had also heard something about Jesus. And so she said, if I can just, if I can make it to Jesus before anyone notices who I am and I can just touch his cloak, then maybe I will be let back in. 
at this 12 years of suffering, of constant reminder, ceremonial uncleanliness and death might be removed from me. The shame, which is not the case in our current society, but was back then, would be removed from me. And so that's her plan. Verse 27, that's right, she had heard the reports about Jesus. She knew that he was grace-filled. She knew that he was powerful, knew that he was a healer. So she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garments. Because she said, if I just touch his garments, I'll be made well. Now again, if we go back to Levitical law, this was extremely taboo. Because according to Levitical law, when someone or something that is unclean comes into contact with someone or something that is clean, the clean one becomes unclean. There's always a, a move toward the unclean. If, if something or someone who's unclean touches someone who's holy, then that's really bad because you take someone or something that's holy and you drag them all the way down to unclean where they were permitted and in, in charge to go into the presence of God. And now they had to remove themselves even from the community. So what this woman is doing is against Levitical law. And Jesus should have been made unclean, but yet that's not what happens. Jesus feels the power go out from him. That's interesting. We don't have time to get into that. He feels, he recognizes that something's happening. And then he turns around and he says, who did that? Now, if you're the woman, how are you feeling right now? She took a great risk. Do you know, she could get into very big trouble here. And the shame that she was already experiencing because she took this risk could have been compounded if anyone knew that it was she who had touched him. Continuing on in the report, Jesus perceiving, verse 30, in himself the power had gone out from him. Immediately he turned in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing all around you? And why do you say who touched me? Like it's going to be impossible to find out who touched you. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, so she knows that she's been healed. Remember, up a little bit higher. In verse 29, she, she felt that she had been healed. For the first time in 12 years, she felt whole again. She felt healed again. She felt that there was some hope for her. And she took a further risk. Knowing that she had been healed, she came in fear and trembling and she fell down before Jesus. And she told him the whole truth. Look, this is what I did. This is why I did it. And I perceive that I've been healed. And now she doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond. Is he going to berate her in front of everybody, adding to her shame, casting her away from him? No, it's not what he does. In fact, he's very, very gracious. And he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be healed of your disease. Jesus calls the woman daughter. As far as I know, this is the only time that Jesus calls a woman daughter in the Gospels. It's powerful. And and there's much in, in Paul's letters about us becoming sons of God. And the title, Son of God, which is really rightly attributed only to Jesus, and then we share it. It's, it's a gender neutral 
phrase, actually. Uh, women and men, we all become sons of God, not in the gender sense, but in the sense of sharing in inheritance and authority with Christ. Likewise, this, this statement to her being a daughter, I think, can be applied to all of us, that, that when we, like this woman, come with our uncleanness to Christ in faith, knowing that if we could just touch the hem of His garment, we would be made well, we would be made clean. See, the thing is, all of us are unclean because Jesus later in the Gospel of Mark says, don't you know, it's not what goes into the body that makes you unclean, it's that which comes out from the heart. So we're all in the same position as this woman, you see. And dare we take the risk to approach a holy God? And touch Him? Because all of the Old Testament says that if we dare to do that, we will be blown apart. We will be destroyed. Because He's holy and we're unclean. This is a powerful narrative for us as unclean people to recognize if we just by faith approach God and by faith reach out for Christ, He won't reject us. He'll heal us. And He'll make us clean. That's the first thing that we need to learn about this. We remember also that this was a public event, that this woman did this publicly. We're going to come back and talk about why that's significant, especially in the contrast with uh, the healing of the, the raising of the little girl that we're going to look at, which is private. But this was a public event. Why was this public? Why was it important that Jesus turned around and made public what had happened? He could have felt the power go out from him. And, and knowing through the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would have made him aware of everything that happened, he could have allowed this woman to to go away privately, but why did he choose not to do that? Why did he choose to bring her before the crowd? He did this because he wanted to show the crowd publicly that her shame had been removed. That her uncleanness had been removed. That he had restored cleanness to her. He had healed her body. But then He had also shown that she is a valuable contributor, participant in the worshiping community. Daughter, He says. Remember who Jesus is. He is God incarnate. And they may not have known that, but at this point, to this crowd, He's still a very esteemed teacher, a rabbi in their community. So an esteemed rabbi is saying to her daughter, be healed. Now, if anyone wants to deny her entrance to the synagogue, if anyone wants to deny her entrance into their home for lunch, if anyone wants to deny her entrance into the, the, the court of women at the temple, she could say, well, the teacher himself said to me, daughter, if he receives me, why won't you receive me, you see? So Jesus made this public, not for His own glory. It wasn't so that He could receive the glory of healing this woman, but so that He could take her shame upon Himself. You know, it was actually a shameful thing for Him to come into contact with her. And so He says, let me step into the shame. Let, let me take the shame. If anyone wants to accuse me of coming into contact with an unclean woman, let them do that. But let them know that I stand with this woman. And I declare her to be clean. I declare her to be well. I declare her to be a daughter of God. 
Finally, the woman had been bleeding for 12 years. That 12 is a very symbolic number. 12 is like 7 and like 10. It's a, it's a picture of, of uh, completeness. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus it, it very purposely chose 12 disciples to reconstitute the people of God. You might say that this woman who was bleeding, shedding blood for 12 years, represents all people. And when Jesus heals this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, He is restoring to Himself a people, symbolically. That He's saying, this is what I have to do with every one of the children of God. Every one of the children of God at one time was as unclean as this woman. So don't any one of you think, Jesus says, that you were any better than this woman or any more clean than this woman. It is from your heart that that which comes from your heart makes you clean or unclean. This woman was unclean because she was shedding blood, but you're unclean because of that which is in your heart. So like this woman, all every child of God, every son, every daughter has to come to me and must reach out for me and be healed and may be made clean. It's a very symbolic number. This woman represents every one of us. Do you see how that works symbolically in the text? The 12 years showing that she's a representative for all of us, every son and daughter. That's the first story. Let's transition to the second story. We're going to look at some other observations. Continuing now in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house. You see also an overlap chronologically, right? So before the, the first story ends, the second story cuts in on it. While he was still speaking to the woman and to the crowd, then the second story cuts in. So there's this overlap. There's this intentionality that Mark is trying to show us. Read these two stories together. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, just believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So he says, I'm going to go from here, from this experience. You disciples stay here. Mingle with the crowd, teach the crowd, minister to the crowd. He takes the three disciples that he was training to lead the church after he was gone, and he takes them with him. So it's just Jesus and, and the three, Peter, James, and John. Verse 38, And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a great commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So this is indicative of the, the fact that the girl had died. This was Jewish tradition that that they would uh, really make a scene outside of the house so that everyone would know that, that this girl had died. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but just sleeping. What does Jesus mean? Paul picks up on this, right? Paul often says he calls people that have died in faith he says that they're sleeping. Jesus and Paul don't mean that, that when our bodies stop working that we're actually just sleeping and that we'll come out of the grave because we're actually just sleeping like at night. But what, what 
it's a great theological thing that Jesus and Paul later will be trying to teach is that that physical death, if you put your faith in Christ, if you have faith, if you do believe, as he said to the uh, not the centurion, the ruler of the synagogue, if you if you die in faith, then that physical cessation of life is but temporary. That's what it means. Don't don't cry. She's not dead as in without hope. She's sleeping. Her body has stopped working, but it's temporary. It's it's reversible. It's it's fixable by the power of God. They laughed at him. They didn't understand. They they thought that he was just not aware that she had actually died. But he put them all outside. And then he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. Who were with him? Peter, James, and John. So now we've got Jesus, the mother and the father, Peter, James, and John. So that's six. Six people then go inside the room where the child was. Verse 41, And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum. Which means little girl, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. Then Mark gives us this information. He didn't need to. For she was 12 years old. It's a parenthetical statement. It's a a statement that's not a part of the forward movement of time. It's just information that, that Mark wants us to have in order to interpret this event. They were immediately overcome with amazement. Who? Peter, James, John, the parents. Then Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. So let's look at five observations here. Unlike the healing of the woman with the bleeding disease, Jesus does this healing in private. Why the difference? Well, whereas the first healing would have brought shame and reproach upon Jesus because he, a supposed uh, leader in the church, obviously he is, but I'm just saying supposed because people would put that into question, that he would come into contact with a woman who was unclean. So that brought shame and reproach on Jesus, but he makes that public. He He doesn't worry about the shame that that brings upon him. But he's more concerned to elevate the woman, right? And say, I want you to know that she's well, that she's healed, she's clean. So he made that public because it was in the woman's best interest. But this is different. This would have brought Jesus great fame. That he rose this little girl from the dead. That's what Elijah had done in the past. And and he was a hero of the Jews. That that Elijah had raised a girl from the or a boy from the dead. And now this. Jesus raises a girl from the dead. It would have brought him great glory. And so not seeking glory for himself, but actually just trying to instruct Peter, James, and John. This is for their instruction. That's why he brought them. And that he has the mother and the father so that he has witnesses that this actually happened. He says, I'm not doing this for my own glory. I'm doing this for you so that you can see why I have come. That's very instructive for us. When should we do things in the public sphere and when should we keep things private? When should we do things before men and women and when should we do things in secret? 
That's always very difficult to understand for me. It's always, you know, you want to do a good thing. And if somebody knows about it, is that a bad thing? Well, not necessarily. But now what is the motivation when we do something, when we do an act of good or an act of charity or an act that we're serving God? What's why is it sometimes we ought to do it publicly and sometimes we ought to do it privately? Well, our motivation always has to be. If we do something publicly, if we draw attention to it, are we doing that for our own glory? Are we doing that to elevate whoever it was that was involved in our act of service? If we do something to elevate someone else, then do it publicly. Let people know what you have done. But if you are seeking some glory for yourself, if you are letting people know of some good deed that you have done because you want someone to know that you have done a good deed, well, then keep it to yourself. God knows that you have done it. And that's the only one that really needs to know. It's very important that we think about that as Christians. We don't need to, every time we we serve someone, make sure that other people know. In fact, do it in private. Secondly, talithakum. Mark must have thought that this was very important for our understanding of the gospel. Because he preserves not just what Jesus said, but the very words that Jesus said. Isn't it amazing to think that here we are on the other side of an ocean over 2,000 years later, and I can tell you verbatim what Jesus said to that little girl. I don't know that my accent is very good. In fact, uh, Jackie would know better. (laughs) Talithakum. But Jesus, he said it probably better than I, that, that different accent. You can ask Jackie after how to say it. But he spoke to the woman in Aramaic and said, little girl, get up. The amazing thing is the girl did. The girl was raised back to life. The authority that Jesus has even over death. If we read all of this chapter, you would see that it begins with Jesus casting out demons. So we know that Jesus has authority over the demonic world. Then Jesus has uh, authority to heal an unclean woman without becoming unclean himself. Now he has authority even over death. This whole chapter is about the glory and the power and the authority of Jesus to raise people even from the dead. Now this girl was 12 years old. This is important for two reasons, I think. The first reason is that when, when a boy or a girl in the ancient context, at the time of Jesus, turned 13, then they started thinking about marriage. So this girl was just about ready to be married. That seems strange for us, right, in our, in our cultural context. But Jesus raised this girl back to life just before she was about to be married. I think that we could say then that she becomes a representative for the church. The church is betrothed to to Christ. The church is, to say it symbolically, the church is 12 years old. We're about marriageable age because, because we are the bride of Christ. But that, that wedding has not yet been consummated. That when Christ returns for us, then we will be of marriageable age. Then we will become corporately the bride of Christ. And right now we're about 12 years old. That's very instructive, I think, as we look at this, that Jesus raises the little girl right before she's marriageable age. That's exactly what he's going to do for every one of us. That there's going to come the day when Christ returns and there's going to be a great trumpet sound from heaven and then Jesus is going to say, Talitha kum, and we're all going to rise up. 
a marriageable age to become the corporate bride of Christ. And then I think also the same thing that we said about the woman who was bleeding for 12 years is that, again, these 12 years are symbolic for that completeness. There's 12 tribes, 12 disciples. So this is a picture of the church. Picture one year for every tribe, every disciple. Then Jesus instructs the girl to be given something to eat. This is exactly what he did on the very first resurrection Sunday. Jesus, the first fruits, who was raised from the dead after being crucified and buried. When he appears to his disciples, they think he's a ghost. They say, I don't, I, I, I see you, but I don't believe that it's you. He says, touch me. So all of his disciples, except Thomas was there, they get around him, they press in, they can feel the flesh, they can press in against the skeleton of Jesus, but they still didn't believe. For fear and amazement, they think, I, I must be dreaming, I think that I'm feeling you, but I just can't believe it. So Jesus says, would well, you have anything to eat? Spirits don't eat. Ghosts don't eat. Well, we have we have a fish. Yes, we do. We boiled this fish. And so Jesus takes it and he eats it to show, yes, he's alive. The same body that died and was buried was in that room eating fish. And so Jesus instructs the girl to eat so that no one can say, well, this is this is not right. This is she's not really alive or anything of the sort. He says, give her something to eat. She's alive and she needs it. So she ate. She was alive. I suppose we could stop there. It was the faith of the woman that healed her. It was the faith of this girl's father that healed her. It's instructive for us. Talitha kum, it, it helps us to see that we will all be raised from the dead by Jesus. But is there more that we can say? Are there more, deeper connections even than this? I think that there are. We're just going to close our time by looking at them. Let me summarize it by saying this, that the healing of the woman shows us what we are saved from. The healing of the little girl, the raising of her back to life, shows us what we are healed for. The healing of the woman shows us what we are healed from. The raising of the little girl shows us what we are healed for. What are we healed from? We are healed from endless menstruation. Think about what I mean by that. Think symbolically. What is, what is it biblically, theologically that, that we are to think of through the monthly shedding of blood? Menstruation, as I said, is a picture of lifelessness, opportunity lost, opportunity missed, the potential for life that had been um, overlooked or not conceived. And the fact that this woman had been shedding blood for 12 years shows us symbolically, theologically, that this is a picture of endless death. Endless opportunity missed. Do you know every, every egg that travels that journey and is not conceived and born as a human being, or conceived as a human being at least I should say, 
is a picture of one person in this world that dies without faith in Christ. That's the theological picture. We are saved from endless death. We are saved from coming to the end of our days without having been conceived and born again by God. That's what we're saved from. When were we saved from this? Sort of two answers to this. One, it, it, it occurs individually for each one of us at a certain place in time in history as God calls us. He calls us at a particular moment and the imperishable seed of God is conceived in us when the gospel issues forth and we believe it. But we've been talking in the last couple of months about the fact that this was all decided before the foundation of the world and it was made effective. It was secured for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. So, so if we're thinking in liturgical terms, and we're not a liturgical church, but if we're thinking in liturgical terms, we are saved on Good Friday. We're saved on that day when Jesus died on the cross. I want to show you some amazing parallels with what happened to Jesus on the cross and what was happening to this woman for 12 years. We're told that when this woman came up behind Jesus and touched his cloak, that there was a power that went out from Jesus and she was healed. We also know that according to the Mosaic law, that should have made Jesus unclean, but it didn't. Right, we, we, He maintained His holiness the whole time. He was holy. Except for this, that actually the healing of the woman was secured by the cross of Christ. And it's on the cross of Christ that the power of Christ went out to make every unclean person who puts their faith in Him clean and holy. So though Jesus healed this woman in, in the moment, that, that, that was a sign for what was going to happen on the cross for all of us who are unclean. And in fact, her very healing was secured at the cross. And in fact, everyone that Jesus ever healed was secured at the cross. If Jesus doesn't die on the cross, then all these healing miracles mean nothing. And, and actually, the power of the, that healing comes from what God accomplishes on the cross. Isaiah says it this way. He says, by his stripes we are healed. There there has to be a crucifixion. And it's at the crucifixion of Jesus that the power of Jesus goes out from him to heal us, to heal that woman, to heal all of us who are unclean. Second thing I want us to see is that when that woman touched Jesus, that should have made him unclean. It did not, at least not in that moment, not at that time. And yet on the cross, we're told that the sins of the world were put in the body of Christ. We're told that all of the curses of God fell to Jesus. Paul in in Galatians says that Jesus was made to be a curse for us. I think we could take it a step further and say that on the cross, though he maintained his perfect holiness in one sense, in another sense, Jesus took on the uncleanness of the world. He became unclean on the cross. So when the woman touched him, did that make Jesus unclean? Yes. Not in the moment, but on the cross. And you see, this whole, this whole healing of this woman is, is a picture. It's a sign. It's taking us to the cross. And we can take it one step further. 
What was it that this woman was healed from? The shedding of blood. It was a symbol of an opportunity for life missed. Jesus heals a woman who's a picture of every unclean person who was shedding blood for 12 years by shedding His blood to the point of death on the cross. This woman is but a picture of the cross. What she endured for 12 years is but a picture, a drop of what Jesus finished on the cross. And all of all of the pain, all of the symbolism theologically of what she was enduring, the fact that she was made to be an outcast, the fact that she, she carried with her everywhere she went, shame, the shame of this woman, the shame of all of us fell to Jesus on the cross when He bled to death for us. Jesus, God doesn't waste an ounce of His creative genius Even that part of a woman's life that we may not think about theologically very often, there's deep theological reason that God created women in that way. Because that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's a, for us, every month it's a symbol of death, but Jesus bled to death for the whole world. Finally, Jesus was crucified in public just as this woman was healed in public. And you know what the result was of Jesus dying on the cross in public, shedding His blood? This woman who had been unclean, who wasn't able to conceive herself for 12 years, becomes a daughter. And it's at the cross that you and me become daughters of Christ. So what are we saved from? We're saved from endless death. Eternal death. We're saved from shame. We're we're transferred from the, the, the status of outcast to the status of daughter. It's powerful. Now, you, can you see where we're going? So that, that whole episode with Jesus and the woman was pointing to His cross. Now you know where we're going, right? What is the episode of raising the little girl from the dead? What is that a picture of? What are we saved for? We know what we've been saved from. What are we saved for? Well, obviously, we're saved for resurrection from the dead. The dead girl is a picture of dead humanity. Uh, the, The death of the girl is the fate of every man and woman and child that has ever been born of Adam and Eve in every generation unless God intervenes. Our end is to go return to the dust from which we were created in the first place. And that's the end. Death wins. Death absolutely wins unless God does something and God does do something and that's His Gospel. Jesus died on the cross to make us sons and daughters so that He would rise back to life 
so that the resurrected Christ Himself would one day return for us and say to us, Talitha kum. Talitha kum. Arise from the dust. It's time to be married. It's time to become my bride. And do you know what's amazing is this was done in private. Jesus was crucified in public, but He was raised to life in private. In fact, who was there? We don't know if even a single angel was there when Jesus was raised back to life. So holy, so wonderful was the moment when Christ conquered death for humanity that nobody was there and that the only way that we can believe that it actually happened was by faith. And the same thing was true for this. When Jesus exited the room with the little girl, everyone that was mourning outside had to ask themselves a question. When the rabbi said, don't weep for she is not dead, she is only sleeping, what did he mean? Did he mean that she was only sleeping? Were we wrong? Was she not dead? Was was she actually still living? Or was there a great miracle that took place here? That's what we all have to answer, isn't it? Did Jesus really rise back to life? It was a private event. It's interesting that um, two of the people that were there when Jesus raised this little girl back to life, they're the ones that raced to the open tomb. And when they, when uh, Peter and John went into the open tomb and they saw that it was empty, I bet the first thing that they thought of was Talithakum. He's back to life. He's alive. What are we saved for? We're saved for eternal life. Not ghost-like life, but resurrection from the dead. Do you believe it can happen for you? Do you believe that you can die and be buried or cremated or lost to the elements? And do you believe that Jesus can come in His resurrected glory and simply say, Kum. And that your remains will, whatever they are, will rise and God will add to you physical glory? Do you believe it? Because the only way that that will happen to you for eternal life is that you believe it. And on that day, when Jesus raises us back to life, then we are adopted as sons. That's when our adoption takes place. So we have the promise of adoption right now. So we can say we've been adopted, but the adoption is finalized when we're resurrected. That's Romans 8. But also our marriage is consummated when Christ returns for us. We're adopted and married to Christ when He returns for us. Daughter, You're healed. Little girl, arise. For she's 12. Almost ready to be married. I want to give you one last observation. And this is really important. That Who is this for? Who has access to this Gospel? Is it just for the poor? Is it only for the rich? The woman was an outcast, probably very, very poor. Twelve years, ostracized from society, isolated. 
The little girl was the daughter of a leader in the in the synagogue. Very um, influential family, powerful family, probably a wealthy family. Outcast, daughter of leadership, and everyone in between. That's why Paul says in First Timothy two. I know that you're being persecuted by the emperors and the governors. Pray for them. Yeah. Pray for your rich, persecuting overlords because God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Rich ones, poor ones, um, uh, powerful people, not powerful people. Every ethnicity, every language, every nation, every, every tribe, everyone. Go out into the world. And give the gospel to everyone because it is available to all. And everyone, all they need do is believe. And Jesus will bleed to death for them. And He will rise again to call them from the grave. This is for you and for me and for everyone. These two episodes combined in Mark chapter 5 are a double picture of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. They're, they're a picture of, of the Day of Atonement. First fruits. Jesus publicly bleeds to death on Friday. Jesus is privately raised from the dead on Sunday. We are healed of eternal death on Friday and we become daughters and brides of Christ on Sunday. So far we have two phrases in the Gospels that are in Aramaic. These two phrases put together summarize the gospel. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he became unclean. He became an outcast. He took on the sins of the world and he received the full curses of God the Father for us. But three days later, he was raised from the dead and he will return to say to us, Talithakum. Arise from the dead. What a gospel. Summarized in two Aramaic phrases. Let's pray.